So the scene had been set for a showdown. On top of the mountain where all could see the battle lines had been drawn. On one side you had the prophets of Baal, 450 of them armed with swords and spears, and with them the corrupt king of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahab, the one who'd done more evil than any other king before him. On the other side you had just one man, seemingly weak and vulnerable, wanted by the king for treason, Ahab wanted Elijah dead. And in the middle between the two had stood the people of Israel. And as we saw last week, Elijah had made the opening move. He turned to the people and he said, How long are you going to waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Come on, Israel. Whose side are you on? It was a direct confrontation in their face no holds barred but the people remained silent not a word you could hear a pin drop so Elijah threw down the gauntlet there were going to be two balls cut into pieces ready for sacrifice but here was the crux no matches this was to be a battle of the gods this was a clash for the kingdom of heaven and earth and the prophets of Baal went first. As the sun rose, they began to call on their God, O Baal, O Baal, answer us. But there was nothing, just silence. So they upped the ante, they began to dance round and round their altar. They weren't trying to rouse Baal into action. O Baal, O Baal, answer us. But nothing, silence. The meat stayed raw, there was no flame grill. And by noon, the dancing and the calling out had been going on for hours and Elijah got a bit bored. So to remove the tedium, he'd begun to taunt them. Come on, shout louder. Surely Baal is God. Come on, where is he? Is he asleep? Is he busy? Is he on holiday? Where is he? And we saw last week how in the face of that mockery, the prophets became frantic. They shouted louder and louder. They were slashing themselves with knives, pleading with Baal to answer. But there was nothing. Silence. Finally, enough was enough. It was Elijah's turn and Baal's humiliation was set to be completed. Elijah threw 12 huge jars of water over the sacrifice so much it cascaded off the altar and filled a trench beneath it. And then he stepped up to pray. Such a simple prayer. No shouting, no yelling, no dancing, no self-mutilation. Elijah simply said, answer me, O Lord. Answer me. And of course, God heard, and, and God cared, and God was faithful, and the fire fell. And it was a scene of total victory. In that moment, the people, they fell prostrate on the ground, and they declared, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Baal had been shown to be non-existent. His prophets had been shown to be liars and cheats. It was the ultimate victory in 1 kings 18 which we read last week we saw how god is sovereign over all the only god the one true god and the only question left was whether king ahab would heed that truth 
And as our reading begins today, the answer is revealed, and the answer was, of course not. Because instead of turning back to God, Ahab turned to someone seemingly far more threatening, his wife. Now Jezebel was a fearsome specimen of a woman, and she held a stranglehold over her husband. Ahab might have been Israel's most evil king, but he was also the king with the biggest thumbprint on his forehead. It was Jezebel who had enticed him to worship Baal. It was Jezebel who had set about murdering all the Lord's prophets. And it was Jezebel who ran the roost. And when she heard that her prophets had been defeated, she was furious. And she sent a message to Elijah and it was blunt. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. Jezebel was adamant she would have Elijah dead and dead within 24 hours. Now what happens next can only be described as a terrible collapse. Never in the whole of scripture do we see the fragility of human beings as clearly as we do here. Because as Jezebel breathes out her murderous threats, Elijah is terrified. And he is so afraid, he flees for his life. But worse is yet to come. As Elijah's terror mixes with exhaustion, he suddenly becomes depressed. In his own eyes, he was a total failure. Despite the great miracle, despite the great victory he'd just seen, Jezebel was still spouting her evil. Israel was still in her grip. Nothing had seemed to change. All his efforts seemingly for nothing. And suddenly Elijah is suicidal. He sits down under the tree and he prays to die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. How quickly the taunting has gone. Elijah's confidence is shattered. The light of the blazing Mount Carmel fire has been snuffed out. And Elijah has plummeted into darkness. And just in case we're in any doubt as to how bad things have got, we need to see what happens next. It starts off with this picture of beauty. God, in all his compassion, sends his angel to help. And the angel arouses Elijah, the wonderful smell of freshly baked bread, and gently coaxes him to eat, lovingly gives him a drink, and lets him sleep. God's tender mercy was still not finished there. The angel of the Lord comes back and lovingly feeds Elijah again. This time in a way so miraculous, Elijah doesn't need to eat again for another 40 days or 40 nights. But here's the point. Elijah is still in despair. Even after these two incredible angelic appearances, Elijah is still determined to give up. You see, Elijah had been called to be God's representative, his prophet. God wanted to use Elijah to call the people back to him. But in order for Elijah to fulfill that calling, he needed to be among the people. 
Elijah needed to be in Israel. But suddenly we find Elijah heading in the complete opposite direction. How does Elijah use those miraculous 40 days worth of food? Well, he uses it to travel as far from Israel as he can. He ups and he walks out of the promised land and he heads for Horeb, or as we better know it, Mount Sinai. Elijah is so depressed that even after this great victory, even after this amazing appearance of an angel, he has still totally given up. And how do we know this? Well, because as soon as Elijah arrives at his destination, God's asked him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? It, it was a fair question. In the past, God had always told Elijah specifically where to go, but God had never asked him to go to Sinai. The truth of the matter was that Elijah had decided to withdraw himself from the battle. Elijah was in completely the wrong place, and, and he knew it. So in response to God's very simple question, he refuses to give a straight answer. Instead, he unleashes this tirade of emotion and frustration and anger. I've been zealous for the Lord, but the Israelites have rejected you. They've broken your altar, smashed the altar, killed the prophets. Don't you care, Lord? I'm the only one left. In truth, it was painfully clear why Elijah had gone to Mount Sinai. He'd gone to the place where God had made his covenant with Israel, where he'd given them the Ten Commandments, because he thought that would be the best place to complain about them breaking it. Unlike Moses, Elijah hasn't gone to Sinai to pray. He's gone there because he's angry. Elijah wants Israel judged for their faithlessness. And what is more, Elijah's anger and despair has made him lose all perspective. You know that line about him being the only prophet left? Elijah knows that's not true. Only just back in the previous chapter, chapter 18, Elijah met Obadiah. A man described in verse 3 as a devout believer in the Lord. A man who had saved a hundred other loyal prophets from Jezebel's clutches. This is what happens when we isolate ourselves. When we leave that community of friends and companions and people who care for us. We completely lose perspective. As Elijah reaches Sinai, he is an incredibly broken man. He is terrified, he is exhausted, he feels like a failure. He is consumed by darkness and depression. From the heights of Mount Carmel, the victory of the fire, Elijah has crashed to the valley floor. But at this point, as we reach this moment of real darkness, the Lord does something beautiful. Amazingly, God turns up in person. As Elijah sinks to the pits of despair, God shows Elijah that he is there and he's going to pick him up and lead him through. He steps in to provide Elijah with the reassurance that he needs. But it comes in a very unique way. First, a mighty wind 
tears through the mountain, literally blasting rocks apart. Then comes a huge earthquake that shakes the whole mountain. And then comes a fire, a blazing inferno, normally the ultimate sign of God's presence. But no, the Lord was not in any of these. The Lord was not present in any of these furious forces of nature. Instead, the Lord comes after the echo of the storm. After all the violent commotion, God speaks in a gentle whisper. The Hebrew literally says that God came in the sound of sheer silence. Now, what does this mean? What is God saying? Well, he's trying to teach Elijah a very important lesson. He is sovereign and he's in control. He's sovereign over the silence. He's sovereign over the people. And it's this truth that will eventually reassure Elijah. You see, Elijah's despair began when after the incredible fire miracle on top of the mountain, everything had seemed to go quiet. When Jezebel had threatened, Elijah had thought that God had upped and left him behind. But nothing could be further from the truth. God had never left Elijah. It was no coincidence that God sent his angel at the exact moment that Elijah tried to commit suicide. God had been there watching all along. And Elijah had a really important lesson to learn. That yes, sometimes God works in bold and dramatic ways that we just cannot deny. But sometimes God works in ways that we struggle to detect. God is sovereign even when the world appears to be silent. God was sovereign in the fire and the noise. And he was sovereign in the despair down below. And God also wanted to tell Elijah something else. He, he wanted to tell him that he alone was in control of the people. When Elijah had gone to Sinai, there's only one thing he wanted. He wanted God to come and sort these people out. He wanted judgment. He wanted something to happen. He wanted God to come in a wind and an earthquake and a fire. He wanted to be vindicated. We all think that at times. It's not fair, God. Why is this happening to me? But in speaking in the silence, God had a message for Elijah. He was sovereign, Elijah wasn't. And he would decide what he was going to do with his people. And as it happened, he wasn't going to wipe them out. He had a plan. And Elijah needed to sit up and take notice because he was going to be an important part of that plan. But here's the thing, right? Elijah was so broken, so full of self-pity, he was unable to grasp what God was saying to him in this moment. And we know this because in verse 13, God gives him the opportunity to repent. And he gives him this opportunity by asking him the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives him the exact same answer that he had the first time. Rather than confessing and saying, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I know I'm in the wrong place. I'm sorry I doubted you. I'll go where you want me to go. Elijah launches into another tirade, trying to, to justify himself. Now, by this point, you would expect God to start getting a little bit angry. It seems as though Elijah is refusing to listen. 
But no. Because mercifully, God understands. He, he, he understands the fear that Elijah feels. He, he understands the pain and the suffering that he's going through. So rather than rebuking him, which you and I probably would have done, he gives him another demonstration that he is in control. And he starts giving some final instructions to Elijah, demonstrating that he has power over all things. And he says to him, look, I'm sovereign over all the kings, even of the distant nations. So you go and anoint Hazel, king of Aram. But I'm sovereign over all the people, even the insignificant ones. So you go and appoint Jehu as king. You haven't heard of him yet, but I know who he is. Oh, and I know you need some help and, and a companion. So you might not know him yet, but you go and appoint Elisha. Because he'll be with you and he'll succeed you as well. And then, just in case Elijah is still in any doubt, God hammers home the message once and for all. Elijah thought that everything was lost. He was the only one. Jezebel was going to win. And God turns around to him and says, hang on, I've been at work all this time. Because all this time, I've protected 7,000 people who have stayed true to me. 7,000 people who will walk with you and support you and worship me. A community of my people, even in this land that's gone so far wrong. And it's when Elijah is confronted by this that he finally grasps it. The salvation of the nation didn't depend on him, it depended upon God. He was a human being, he was weak, but God was strong. He was short-sighted. He couldn't see everything that was happening. But God was watching over everything. He made mistakes. Many mistakes. Leaving his friends was a big mistake. But God didn't. And at last Elijah learns his lesson. God is sovereign. He's in control. Trust him. And Elijah, to his credit, gets up and does what God asks him to do. This is one of my very favourite passages in scripture. I find it a really heartwarming one. And it's so reassuring when we get to see that even the most heroic of biblical figures had the same failings and flaws and faults and weaknesses that we do. Elijah had seen incredible miracles. He'd seen fire fall out of the sky. But when he felt threatened, he doubted. And very quickly that doubt escalated into something much worse. Elijah became depressed. And depression is a real issue in our nation at the moment. It's an issue that affects Christians just as much as it affects non-Christians. The charity mind estimate that one in four of us experience depression any given year. In the cauldron of life, it's so easy to get worn down. In those crisis moments, it's so easy for anxiety to escalate and strangle our lives. Elijah said, God, this isn't fair. How often have we echoed those words? But the message of this passage is the grounds of hope for all of us. God is in control and we can trust him. God has a plan. And even when all seems silent, he is working on it. And perhaps most importantly of all, 
God is always there. Always there, watching over his people. In this passage, Elijah was forced to recognize his weakness. But God didn't leave him there. He picked him up and gave him a chance to start again. God does some beautiful things in this passage. Gives him rest, gives him good food, gives him someone to talk to. He listens to him. These are great ways for us to support anybody going through depression. God treats Elijah with great gentleness and great care. And he wants to do the same for us. So if you're here in church today and you feel weak, or you're going through a really tough time, you feel like you're stumbling, you feel like you're doubting, you feel like you're on the verge of giving up, you're in the right place. Because God is here, and God loves you, and God wants to pick you up. He is sovereign, but he is gentle. And if we turn to him in prayer, we will experience his love for ourselves.